in the whole book, Micah 6, 8. We're going to run up to that. Um, this is a very important verse. We're going to look at the context of that verse today. Well, next week we'll do more with that verse. It's called the, often called the Micah Mandate. Do justice, love mercy or kindness, and walk humbly with God. We'll start that today. I'm gonna, let me whet your appetite a little bit with that. Um, these, these three commands are not sequential necessarily. They're, they're, they're not like a three-course meal, but they're more like a stir-fry. <laughs> these three things are more like a stir-fry. Well, you, we'll, we'll talk more about that, how these three, what these things, these three things are and how they relate. Um, <clears throat> the session's talked a lot about the, the, this practice of standing before Scripture. We're going to do that. Um, we've come to a conclusion that it is a good practice. You can read Nehemiah chapter 8 to, to get a biblical framework for that. But, but yes, when, when, we, when we gather together as God's covenant people to, to renew our faith, to hear from him, the reading of scripture before the message is, a, is an important moment. So I want to ask you to rise and listen to Micah 6, 1 through 8. The text for this morning. <clears throat> hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear you, hear you, mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and, and, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn or for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's told you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Amen. Be seated. Very interesting passage. It's interesting. To f one of the key things is figuring out who's talking. <laughs> what voice, whose voice are we hearing? My title is Covenant Unfaithfulness. Covenant Unfaithfulness. Commentators on this passage all agree that this is a courtroom scene. The language is clear. The original language and even here. Uh, the African Bible commentary. Micah speaks as if he's attending a court case where God is the plaintiff, prosecutor, and judge. And Israel is the defendant. The hills and the mountains are the witnesses as God brings his charge against Israel. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb. <laughs> to say that this is, this is a specific type of courtroom scene. This is a domestic court. Uh, we, we could soften it and look at it like it's a counseling session, but I think the legal language of the passage doesn't allow us to do that. This is a domestic court situation. God is the prosecutor and Israel is the defense. You know, in Scripture, we see over and over and over again the analogy of the sacred romance of God and his people, that God is the husband and we are the bride, the bride of Christ. It's not just in the New Testament, the Old Testament as well. Israel, the Lord said, your maker is your husband, in Isaiah chapter 5, 54. So, in one sense, we're all brides. We are all brides. 
you're a disciple of Jesus, you're a bride. If you're a single woman or a single man, <laughs> you're a bride. If you're a married, married woman or a married man, you're a bride. If you're formally married through death or through divorce, you're a bride. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, if you're a young child and you're trying to be a disciple of Jesus, in this analogy, this biblical analogy, you're a bride. This analogy we see it in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's quite helpful. It shows the importance of biblical covenant faithfulness, covenant love and commitment as the basis of our discipleship life. It's not obligation or duty that God's calling us for, to, towards. It's not feelings or emotions even. It's covenant faithfulness to the relationship with our true and living God who loves us. But like most analogies, it falls short, <laughs> doesn't it? It's not a perfect analogy. Why? In our marriages, we have two sinners. At least in my marriage, there's two sinners. <laughs> I don't know about yours. I'm not, I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about me here. <laughs> but with God and his bride, there's a perfect party and an imperfect party. And in our lives, it's impossible for husbands to play the role perfectly and it's wrong for men not to realize that. They also fall short. God never falls short. So I believe the sacred romance theology, though, is the background of this, of this courtroom scene in this passage. God has established a covenant relationship with his people Israel. And they had obligations. And he had his obligations. But the essence of the covenant was that God was establishing a love relationship with Israel unlike any of the other nations. They were his chosen. They were the elect. But they broke covenant. They broke that relationship. Like a man and a wife choose one another out of all the other people in the world, likewise, God says, I'm choosing you to have a covenant relationship with you. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 8, where God says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. In fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Disciple of Christ, believer in Christ, he says the same thing about us. He's chosen us in love, not because of anything in you. By grace you're saved, through faith, God's gift, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You are... Jesus said, you have not chosen me, but I chose you and ordained you to go and bear fruit. Jesus said, no one comes to, the Father unless the, come, comes to me unless the Father draws him. Our relationship with God is grounded in his love for us, not our love for him. Do you understand that? That is so vital. When we stray from God's grace, you see, we end up thinking that the ground of our relationship with him is our deeds, our behavior, our performance our feelings, our emotions, or, or some mystical sense of his presence, that that's what it's all about. Now, are, are deeds fine? Yeah, they're okay. Are emotions okay? Sure, nothing wrong with them, but they change. <laughs> our faith is grounded in the unchangeable God and in his grace, the one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
What I want to say today about this Micah mandate, our faith is expressed in this Micah mandate, is simply responding to God's gracious love for us. Get that. The Micah mandate is a response. You'll see that more clearly later. My outline is simple. We look at this courtroom drama, the text, and then I'm going to give some applications, several applications that I believe for us. The text, verses 1 and 2, we have the witnesses. Plead your case before the mountains, let the hills hear your voice. The mountains, the hill, there's an indictment. The, the high places are where the idolatrous worship has taken place. Sacrifice to Baal and the other gods of the Canaanites and and even child sacrifice took place in the hills and high places. A verse from, an example verse from, we can look at a lot of verses in the Old Testament. First Kings chapter 14, verses 22 to 24. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked him to jealousy. Jealousy, there's that word. With their sins that they committed more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars of Asherim, on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Often idolatry led to spiritual adultery, which led to adultery, which led to perversion. Often. We see that in this text. One commentator, Juan Alfaro, says, The mountains and hills are the best witnesses because from their heights, they have seen the sins of the people, and their sins have often been committed in the high places. It's the witnesses. Verses 2 and 3, we see, see the indictment. We have the word indictment in the ESV translation. The Hebrew word there involves the idea of to contend or to bring charges against another party. It's a language of legal litigation. And God is the one making the accusation. He's the prosecutor, and the accusation goes back what Micah has been saying in the first five chapters of the book. God's people have strayed. They have been attracted to other gods. Last week, Brother Anada unpacked for us the, the, the primary sin of idolatry of God's people. They were unfaithful to him. And throughout the prophets, idolatry is seen as a kind of spiritual adultery. Hosea's prophecy is about that, spiritual adultery depicted in that, in that way. I was looking at Jeremiah chapters 2, 3, and 4. Some interesting things there, interesting phrases. There's a few of them from chapter 3. Verse 6 says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you, have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore? You see the language there of, un, of covenant unfaithfulness? Verse 9, because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Again, idolatry. Adultery. You've played, verse 1, you played the whore with many lovers. Would you return to me? Spiritual unfaithfulness, covenant unfaithfulness is what we're talking about here. The African Bible commentary, God was outraged because his people had forgotten him and broken covenant. But... His rage does not end his love. He still addresses them as my people. Twice in the passage we see that. What, what causes a man to stray from his wife? What causes a believer to stray from their God? 
they were excited in the beginning, but after a while they got bored. Wearied is the phrase used in ESV. They wanted more adventure. That which had been thrilling had become normal. The routine cycle of following Jehovah their God and, and, and maybe realizing they had failed to do that perfectly and so going to offer, find an animal and offer a sacrifice on, on an altar and then knowing that the, the aroma went up and it was pleasing to the nostrils of God as it says in the Pentateuch in the first five books and knowing that they were forgiven and now had restored fellowship with God and they seek to follow him again and that cycle goes over and over and over and they got tired of it. They, got, they grew weary with it. So after a while, they wanted to do things differently. To try another way to worship God or another God to worship. It's the indictment. Verse 4 and 5. God, God, God's testimony. God says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery and sent you before, before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shedom to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. This is the Lord's testimony. God reminds them in his, his counter-argument of several things, of his faithfulness. He redeemed them from Egypt, Egyptian slavery. He provided leaders for them, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He protected them and he promised to, to, to bless them, not to curse them, uh, uh, Balak and Balaam, verse 5. He, he, he gave them victory in their conquests from one side of the Jordan. They crossed the Jordan and they settled in the land. Shedem to Gilgal. He had been their God. He had fulfilled his part of the covenant. God, the perfect spouse, is saying, I kept my part of the bargain. I kept my vows. How about you, Israel? Verses 6 and 7, we see a plea. I got, I kind of a plea. This is God's, God's people. and the, the, the language here is quite interesting. It's not quite a, ble, a plea bargain, but there's a, there seems to be an assent that, yeah, we, yeah we, we, we're guilty. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? calves a year old will the lord be pleased with thousands of rams with ten thousands of rivers of oil shall i give my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul the response kind of sounds this sounds like the response of a husband more than a bride <laughs> as i look at it because it's essentially saying come on honey what more do you want from me what more do you need from me what more can i do to show you my love for, for you to know to be acceptable with me for you to realize how much I really do love you. That's the feel of those verses. Burnt offerings with year-old calves. That's a, that's, a, that's a high quality offering. Not an old beat up, a year-old offering there. Well, that, 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 that speaks of the quality of a sacrifice. Or, or maybe uh, the quantity. Will you be pleased with thousands of rams? Quantity of sacrifice. Or 10,000 rivers of oil, precious oil, expensive oil. 10,000 rivers, oils were used in the sacrifices, we see. So, so you see, the remedy 
is to do something to make up for what you haven't been doing. You ever try to do that in a relationship? To try to bargain your way through? And it gets absurd. Look at the next one. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, now it seems absurd at first, but remember, child sacrifice was very normal in that day in the nations around him, the ancient Near East. So it's not totally absurd, but God never sanctioned it. The response is, do I need to sacrifice my precious son to show you that I love you more than anything in the world? Honey, what do you want me to do? That seems to be the response for the people of God right there. This part of the passage reminds me of an obscure song by my, one of my favorite rock groups, Chicago. You probably don't know the song. It's a, it's a small song on an album, but I love the song. I've been thinking it's in my mind all week. I don't want your money. It don't mean a thing. I don't need no fancy clothes or a diamond ring. I don't have to ride in style in your limousine. I don't want no trouble, tax, or Uncle Sam. <laughs> All I want is you. I want to be your natural man. I don't need your prestige, because I got my pride. I don't want your social standing. I'd rather stand outside. I don't have no time to worry about your greedy jive from the 70s, folks. <laughs> I don't want your money. I don't like that game. All I want is you to be your natural man. I can hear Aretha responding, you make me feel like a natural woman. I don't know. <laughs> now, that's, that's what's going on in this passage. Now, let me pause right here before we move on. Some of you may say, I'm not married, so what does it have to do with me? The principle remains the same. David and Jonathan, Ruth and Naomi, Covenant friendships are important in our lives, and, and it's important that we have friends that can last a life with this long-term commitment, and I hope you have some lifelong friends. We often relate to people the same way we relate to God, and some people wrongly think that it's the spectacular that seals a relationship, and it's not. It's the simple. Sometimes the simple happens around the spectacular. But your friends don't have to have you do spectacular things to know that you care for them. They just want your presence. My college roommate's Bill Cianella. He's an elder in the Columbia Church. And uh, we, you know, we, we, we connect occasionally. We call each other up. And uh, every night, we're, we're, we're long-time suffering Redskin fans together. <laughs> occasionally, you know, we, we just you know, complain about the skins and all that. And, and occasionally, he says, hey, I got tickets. Let's go to a game. So occasionally we'll go to a game. Every couple of years we go to a game together. You know, and we have a great time, you know, hoping against all hope that the skins will win, whatever. But you know what? It's not the game. It's hanging out with Bill. You know, the game is kind of there, but it's hanging out with my buddy. And, 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 and that's the way it should be in, 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 in lifelong, lifetime covenant relationships. Yes, you have events together, you do things together, you go on trips together, but it's, it's, what makes the experience is not the experience, it's the person you're with in the experience. Moving on to verse 8, the Micah mandate. So what do we have here? We have this marriage drama. What is God going to say now? Here's God's simple reminder in verse 8, his simple reminder. 
And I think it's Micah give, reminding us of God's reminder. He's told you, oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He's told you, oh man. Now, the old man, it, it, it brings to mind kind of a generic thing. This is just a basic thing. He has told you. Now, this tells us that this isn't something new. <laughs> he's already mentioned this is, he's not giving new information. He's reminding us of something that they've already known. Ever since God formed them as a covenant people, they have had the obligation not only to, to obey the Lord, not only to do sacrifices when they didn't obey the Lord, but first and foremost to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They, uh, Alfred Barnes, they would give their best. They would offer everything, even what God forbade, the child sacrifice, accepting only what he alone, what, what alone he asked for, their heart. It's love and it's obedience. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 5 is the, is the, the Ten Commandments. And following that, uh, we have in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. See, all those commandments were about love. <laughs> the, 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 how, how to love God is, is spelled out in those commandments. But if all you focus on is the commandments and not the heart, then you've lost it. How they forgot, how we forget. See, God says, I'm not interested in, in re you responding in some dramatic, spectacular way to show me that you love me. I, I don't need your money. I don't need vacations. I don't need gold. I don't, need, I, I don't want you to sacrifice human blood to show me your love. What I want is not the spectacular, but the simple. Three simple things. To be a person who acts justly or does justice. This involves integrity, character, and relationships. To be a person who loves kindness. This is the, that Hebrew word hesed. Covenant loyalty, mercy, loving kindness, steadfast love, faithfulness. To be a person who walks in humility Humility before God, dependent trust in God every day for the long haul. Commentator, African Bible commentary, humility includes admitting that Jesus Christ has made the final and complete acceptable, acceptable to God and that only by trusting him can our sins be forgiven and, that, and our guilt removed. That's Humility to come as a child to Jesus, <laughs> realizing that you can't do it yourself. And not to think that if you just, if you just buck it up and, and, and fulfill the my command gate, then you'll be right with God. It's not where it begins, no. It's not where it begins. God says, I don't want your deeds, but I simply want your heart. Each day I simply want you to respond to my grace through a life of uprightness towards people, loyal covenant love, 
and humility in your walk with me. George Grant says, the king, judge, lawyer does not require a gift. He requires something far greater, far more precious. He wants the giver. He wants us. He wants our hearts. See, it is and it always has been about relationship, not ritual, not religion. Hosea talked about uh, Hosea 12.6. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. There's that tri tryout again. Matthew, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, I think, he, I, I think he was clearly alluding to, my, to the Micah mandate. Where in Micah 23.23, 23, he talks about justice and mercy and faithfulness. Pharaoh says, Micah points out that there is something worse than appearing before God empty-handed, namely appearing before him dirty-handed and empty-hearted without justice. So that's the text. Now, let me give some, some applications, several applications, three applications that are, that are, that are for our hearing. Um, first is about our understanding of the faith, just our, our, our theological, doctrinal understanding of what, of, what, of, what, of what the Christian faith's all about. Redemption precedes and produces our relationship with God. It precedes it and it produces it. We become his covenant people because of what he has done. It precedes and it produces the people of God. God initiates it. Micah 6, 8 is not a verse on how to be saved. No. It's about what a saved person, a disciple of Christ, should look like. We're living in a day where there are many folk who don't love Jesus, don't believe the word of God, but they say somehow, they somehow they have an instinctive desire, commitment to justice for the oppressed, which is a good thing to have. Some even work in churches, and that's a good thing to do. But what comes first? What comes first? See, Old Testament faith involved three big picture things, three big things. See, there, there was this redemptive encounter, the Exodus experience that we have in, 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 of, of the crossing of the Red Sea, God, God's ransom from the Egyptian slavery of his people, that, that, that first encounter. Likewise, we in the New Testament, we confess and we repent and we pray to the Lord, asking him to apply the blood of Christ to our life. It's a past thing that's happened, and we apply it to our life. And, and then in, in the Old Testament, there was, this, there was a, the, the sacrificial system, the ritual system that God established of temple worship where they were to come sometimes yearly, but often more than that, different sacrifices, to, 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 because they knew of their own flaws. They would confess and repent and, and pray to the Lord and, hold, and lay hands on the animals and, 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 and the blood would be applied to their lives like, like us. Yes, we're saved, but yes, we need to confess our sins to our Father. And he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Barnes says, to, to substitute sacrifice, which was a confession that at best we're miserable sinners, unable, to, 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 uh, unable of ourselves to please God, for any efforts to please him or to avoid dis, displeasing him would be a direct contradiction of the law. But then there's this present reality, the present reality, walking with God, walking humbly with the maker, your maker. And the Old Testament and the New, the, the, back in the garden, what did Adam do? He walked in the cool of the day in the garden with his maker. 
Enoch walked with God, and he was not because God took him. Noah walked, he found favor with the Lord because he walked with God, walking with God. This Micah mandate is, is about this third plank, discipleship. Discipleship. We're called to walk in this same way, doing justice, loving mercy, humbly walking in prayerful dependence on the Spirit of God, realizing that without him we can accomplish nothing. This involves resting in his love, living a life of love, especially loving those who are unloved and are beat up by society. This third one is discipleship, how we live out our faith daily. Mike is not saying the initial encounter is not important. He's not saying the sacrifices are not important. He's saying they're not enough. They're not enough. The fact that you got saved one day, you were born again one day is great, but it's not enough. The fact that you come to church every week and you, and, and you confess your sins and, and you sing the songs of Zion is good, but it's not enough. God says, walk with me. Walk with me. Walk humbly with me each day. See, saints, it's not just what happens on Sunday. It's what happens on Monday to Saturday, too, that God's concerned about. Regular worship keeps me from feeling, though, weary. They feel weary with God. They get into a rut. Fresh, regular worship should be a remedy to that. Worship involves the corporate remembrance of who our God is, of who we are as his sinful, redeemed people, and how that came to be through what Christ did on the cross. It involves committing our lives to this Christ, saying, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20, to transform a dark world. So if you're feeling stale and bored with God, the issue is not that he is boring. The issue is you've grown complacent and apathetic. You're walking around a world where God is doing all kinds of amazing things, but you're a blind man. You're, you have blinders on. You just don't see what God is doing. We talked about a cycle in the Old Testament. There's a cycle in the New Testament, too. There's a simple discipleship cycle is what I call it, of, of coming to worship the true and living God and leaving to serve him and to love the world and to love the people in your world and then to fall on your face, which is what we all do every single week, isn't it? And then to repent before God and then come back to worship because God invites sinners to repent. And that cycle goes on and on and on as we walk with him. There are a couple opportunities in this issue of, of doing justice, acting justly. Two, a couple opportunities ahead. One, one is um, March 23rd, which I know is the spring thing, but this, this is all day. So you can go to the spring thing in the morning. In the afternoon, you can check out the Ethnos Conference, which is a conference that's held here in Baltimore. It's like the fifth or sixth year. It's, been, it's a great time of believers coming together to talk about issues of justice in our city, in our world. It's March 23rd over at the Central Presbyterian Church. And then... Um, I understand that you don't have an opportunity to do that right now, but, but keep your eyes open for the Unity Team's Being Reconciled class. We had the first class yesterday. 21 of us were there. I think I have a picture. 21 of us were there. And um, uh, it's about racial unity here in this congregation, going deeper in this issue of reconciliation and, 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 our, and our unity together. Um, look for something maybe in the summer when another cohort will begin uh, to do that. Or maybe, maybe there will be a workshop. We'll think about what the next step will be. But we had a great start yesterday. Uh, because, you see, justice is part of discipleship. It's part of discipleship. This is what this, again, we're talking about a stir-fry, not a three-course meal. 
The third application, the final application, is, is, is a, 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 about our marriages. Very, very quickly, about our marriages. Because you see, a similar cycle occurs in a healthy marriage. And I won't even review the cycle. Because it, you know, the, there's the, the covenant renewal. There's going to serve the world, to serve each other. There's offending each other. There's repenting to, before each other. And then there's a more covenant renewal in marriage. But I want to say this. Many people, this is maybe some young people, many people go overboard with weddings. It seems like can, sometimes weddings, as I look out, it's, it's a can you top this kind of thing going on. Can, and can you go into deeper debt maybe is what's also going on. I don't know. <laughs> weddings are big business right now. A nice wedding is fine. A destination wedding is not wrong. But the quality of a marriage is not dependent upon the size of the wedding. Many think that the quality of a marriage is based upon physical intimacy that's happened. It's good, but that's, again, not the only barometer of a quality marriage. The big wedding celebration and the, the ritual act of marriage are never enough. Marital success, true intimacy, comes through becoming one together, working together, sharing life together, serving each other, serving the world, and, and others to produce fruit for God's kingdom. A few weeks ago, we saw a movie called First Man. The story of Neil Armstrong, who as many of you, most of you know, is the first man to walk on the moon, right? Good movie. Did a wonderful job of weaving the story of his exploits into his broken family life. His, his personal struggle as a father and a husband. The movie ended, and then I got my phone out and I Googled it to see how much of it, you know, how much of it was real <laughs> that I'd just seen. And I was shocked to see that the wife, his wife in that movie, and he, after 38 years of marriage, they divorced. That hit me because I've been married 38 years. I said, wow. And then of course, I got the calculator out. That's 13,870 days. That's a lot of days. That's a lot of times of having to go through that cycle. A lot of time, a lot of days. And, um, and it dawned on me as I was thinking about this, you know, 38, 38 years of just loving and forgiving each other or struggling and all that kind of stuff, and then they gave it up. And, and, and I said, you know, a, a successful marriage isn't because you commit to having 38 great years together, because one day at a time, you decide you will be faithful today, the next day, the next day, the next day. And if you focus on right now, you're not achieving some goal down the road, then, then, then the joy will be there. You see, that's how we get with God, you see. We grow bored. We get weary. We want to find a thrill elsewhere. The solution to spiritual weariness is not to look elsewhere away from the Lord. It's to go deeper and look again, to take a fresh look at him, to understand his word more deeply. His presence more deeply. His love more deeply. Our problem is that we're all like the first man in that movie, Neil Armstrong. We're also all like the first man in the Bible. Corinthians 15. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a, li a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, man of dust. The second man is from heaven. 
As was the man of dust, so are also those who are of the dust. And as of the man of heaven, so are also those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We're the first man, but thank God there was a second man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's an irony in this passage in verses 6 and 7. Did you notice that? Did you catch this? Because God gave his firstborn son for sins. We can't do that. God did that. We're like Adam. We're covenant breakers. We're unfaithful covenant breakers, whoring after other gods in our heart. But Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the last Adam, the man from heaven, the second man, the first man from the dead, the firstborn from the dead, faithful to the covenant of redemption, he completely satisfies our sin debt. And so Corinthians 15, 21 can say, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So this Micah mandate, is, it's, it's about simplicity. That's what, it's, that's what it's calling us for, a simple walking with God. Now, what could be more simple in our, as we think about what it means to be a disciple than the simplicity of bread and cup? Nothing spectacular. Wouldn't it be great if God had said um, every, 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 to, to celebrate a filet bignon? That'd be cool, wouldn't it? He didn't do that. What'd he say? Cup, bread, simple stuff. He's given us simple things because... The life of discipleship is hard, but it's simple. <laughs> it's hard, but it's simple. It's walking with God. It's walking with God. It's doing justice, being right to people. It's loving mercy, being, being merciful and kind and patient to people, and walking humbly with our God. If you're the kind of person who thinks that church and religion is about your effort trying to do enough, trying to help the poor, trying to, 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 to please people, trying to be a good person that God might accept you. That is not what this is about. This is about the God who has said, I've, I, I've come and died for sinners. Accept that, and then let's get together. Let's start working on that. Let's start working on that in your, in your life, and let's begin to walk with me. That's what this is about. So this gospel, is, this table is for those who understand the simplicity of this gospel. My officers come forward. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he took this bread and broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup. He said, this cup is new covenant, shed for the remission of sins. Drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim my death till I come again. Paul, in his words, reminds us to examine ourselves, that we understand the simplicity of this, and they were committed to him, that we repented of our sins, that we're walking in fellowship with him and, and with his church. We I give you a moment now to, to pray silently to God, to examine your own selves.